Before we move into the sermon today, I, I just want to take a moment. I think many of you are probably aware of some of the violence that took place over the weekend, two more mass shootings, Dayton and El Paso. Um, it's not even that those are the only mass shootings in the last month, uh, but it, these were way more dramatic, put together more closely, and more deadly. So I wanted to take a moment in our service to engage with that uh, because it's such a big part of what's happening in our country today. So I was struck by an article I read that uh, pointed out something that the journalist saw on the walls of a kindergarten class in Somerville, Massachusetts. Uh, she wrote, but a poster in Somerville, Mass, school, Caught the attention. Oh, it was a, she, a he. Caught the attention of Gregory Cohen and her husband, uh, Georgie Cohen, and her husband Rick. Who it is doesn't matter. What the poster said, uh, I found striking. So, handwritten in multicolored markers on the wall, much like the worship lyrics or scripture verses that you can see in our classrooms upstairs, was this. Lock down, lock down, lock the door. Shut the lights off, say no more. Go behind the desk and hide. Wait until it's safe inside. Lock down, lock down, it's all done. Now it's time to have some fun. And it was uh, accompanying the text were three images. A lock with a key in it, a hand turning off the lights, and a person holding a finger to his lips. And the words go with the tune, Twinkle, twinkle, little star. Also the alphabet song. Uh, it may be a little cliche to say this because of a very popular song and video, but this is America. This is where we are now. This isn't a phase. It's not a moment. This is our culture. In America, we now need nursery songs to prepare our kids not for nuclear attacks or something else, but from shooters. So it's hard to know how to pray because this has happened so often. So I'm borrowing a prayer from the Reformed Church in America. It's a prayer of lament. If you close your eyes with me, let's pray. Lord, in our shock and confusion, we come before you. In our grief and despair in the midst of hate, in our sense of helplessness in the face of violence, we lean on you. For the families of those who have been killed, we pray. For the shooters, help us to pray, Lord. For the communities that have lost members, their anger, grief, fear, we pray. For the churches striving to be your light in darkness beyond our comprehension, we pray. In the face of hatred, may we claim love, Lord. May we love those far off and those near. May we love those who are strangers and those who are friends. May we love those who we agree with and understand. And even more so, Lord, those we consider to be our enemies. 
Kyrie eleison, Lord, have mercy. Heal our sin-sick souls. Make these wounds whole, Lord. Amen. So, obviously, prayer is important, and also at the same time, just praying, as has been commented on very often, is not enough. So if you would like to be involved in ways that our church is working to try and change what is happening in our country, I'd like to encourage you to watch for opportunities to get involved in our partnership with Power. Power is a a multi-faith organization that we've joined that's concerned mainly with justice issues, and this is one of those issues. Um, So watch your bulletin for anything that says POWER. POWER will always be in all caps because it's an acronym for the organization. And join in one of the opportunities to travel or go to a meeting or whatever's happening. Um, It's more than just protests. Sometimes there are protests, but there's often very specific things that can be done to help. Also, I would like to encourage you, uh, I don't know how many details you have, but at least the El Paso shooting was directly connected to racism and white supremacy. And so if um, you would like to practically be involved in what we're doing as a community to be an anti-racist church, I would also encourage you to watch the bulletin uh, and join us in our anti-racist initiative. So this, some of this news was news to me this morning, so I didn't have a moment to look up the specifics of the next power event or opportunity or the next uh, meeting of the anti-racist team or anti-racist gathering. Um, so I'm going to trust uh, that you can find those. You can look on our website, on our calendar, and also in your bulletin. Uh, and let's pray, but let's also be practical. Not that prayer isn't, but let's lean in with our actions, uh, because um, somebody has to lean into seeing the culture of our society change. And it's got to be at least the church, right? So here's what I'm going to do. This is not to minimize what has happened, but I have found in other settings, sometimes just a a group uh, where you'll have a moment where you break off in twos and you do some like peer counseling with another person. You take someone sort of to reflect on some dark thing in their own lives. It can be really helpful then to have a moment to bring them back uh, to the present so that you don't minimize what they're working on in their lives or what's happening in our country, but it helps to bring some relief so that we can also engage with the present moment. And what I'm about to say in the sermon, which is going to be incredible, you don't want to miss it, and all those types of things. So what I would like you to do uh, is just turn to your neighbors uh, on either side and take a moment uh, to share with them what you did to break the heat, beat the heat this weekend. Again, not to minimize what's going on, but just to acknowledge we need to also engage everything else has happened today. So how'd you beat the heat this week? I'll give you a couple minutes.
All right, one more way to beat the heat, and then I'm gonna, and then we're gonna wrap that up. One more way to beat the heat. All right. So, what was the most creative way that you that that you heard of in that last two minutes there of how someone beat the heat? Shout out, anybody? Going swimming. Going swimming. All right, I did that. It helped. Going to the movies. Going to the movies. It's always cold in there, right? What else? Barbecuing. Barbecuing. <laughs> in the heat. Get as hot as you can till you don't feel it anymore. What else? Stand over an open flame. Anybody? What? Adapting. Adapting, yes. I have mutated. <laughs> and uh, ice forms behind my ears. What else? One more thing. Stand under the air. Stand under the air. You'll notice there are a couple seats in this auditorium that get all of the, just get a real nice super blast of cold air. All right. So, with all those things in mind... Uh, let me just say this, and this is totally changing gears, so heads up. I have noticed, and you probably have too, that life can get complicated sometimes, right? Sometimes it can get really complicated for our friends. And when our friends hit a tough spot or a crisis, when they lose a loved one or they're struggling greatly in their lives, it can be really hard to know how to support them. That actually can be stress-inducing. Am I doing enough? Am I overstepping my bounds? Should I press in? Should I give them more space? And I think we can wonder to ourselves, am I a good friend? You know, recently, I know that in our church community, there have been a lot of really intense situations. Now, there's always something happening, but there have been a couple major surgeries, some organ transplants, some accidents, uh, people needing a place to live. So what can we hope for when we find ourselves in these situations, what can we hope for from our friends? And what can we expect of ourselves when our friends find themselves in a tough place? So today we're going to look at one of my favorite stories in the Bible that I think can give us some real insight into what it looks like to be a good friend. What community can actually accomplish in our lives. What we can look to to motivate and inspire our own actions. Sound interesting? Almost everybody I know really wants to connect to a community of people, or at least a few people have good friends. But almost everybody I know feels like there's a lack in their lives in that area as well. And I think this is a model, this can be an encouragement uh, to help us with this. This is Mark chapter 2 for 12 verses. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and lowering the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, 
Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to, the paraly- to, say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Now, to set the scene for the rest of today's talk, I think it would be really helpful to understand uh, the context of this whole story. So Jesus, he's just recently started this public ministry, and it's almost like he is on tour. He's going around uh, the countryside to different towns, and the word about him is spreading fast. And this is just the second chapter of Mark's version of the life of Jesus, but already people are flocking to him. So in the story we have here, there are so many people crowding around Jesus that there isn't enough room to fit them all in the house where Jesus is teaching people. So people are spilling out into the streets. And into that picture... Enter five friends, uh, one paralyzed and four carrying him. And they bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus in, I think, what you could consider an unorthodox way. And then Mark makes one comment that completely changes the course of the story. And that's what we're going to look at today. He writes this. He says, when Jesus saw their faith. And this phrase sends the story which had just been about how popular Jesus was becoming in a completely different direction. In a direction where some people are offended, others are amazed, many lives, I think, were changed. And in this phrase, I think we can learn about at least three needs that friendship tries to address. A practical need, a spiritual need, and what I think is fair to say our deepest need. So let's look at this, all right? So I think we can learn from this. I think we'll always be imperfect, but I think these, these four guys, these five guys can really inspire us. So what's the practical need? Well, the practical need is this. We all need a lift. Mark writes, when Jesus saw their faith, and the word I'm focusing on there is S-A-W, saw. When Jesus saw their faith, I think that word's really significant because Significant because when we think of faith, usually I think we think of something internal, right? Something that we have in private, something that is under the surface, something that exists, but that in some ways is intangible. It can't be grasped or seen. But Mark says that Jesus saw their faith, meaning that their faith was something that could be seen, identified, noticed, recognized. Now, you might think, well, Jesus could see into people's hearts. In fact, later in the story, he's able to tell people what they're thinking about, that they're upset with him for forgiving this man's sins. But the action of the story supports a conclusion that Jesus literally saw their faith because of what they physically were doing. So imagine the scene from Jesus' point of view, right? You're right in the middle You're preaching this amazing sermon. People are crowding in. Uh, They're listening. They're laughing at every one of your jokes. 
All your points are hitting home. You see that person in the corner smiling and laughing. That person has a tear in their eye. It's like magnetic in the room. There's so much energy. You are in the zone, okay? You're like Jesus at his best, right? Everyone's listening. Then all of a sudden, some dirt trickles down on your nose, okay? You feel something on your head, and then some thatch from the ceiling caves in. All right, now all of a sudden, nobody is listening to your sermon anymore. Uh, and then through this hole in the roof, somebody jumps in. Now imagine somebody broke a window from our skylight up here, and little pieces of glass started falling on me, because I know you're enraptured right now, but what would happen then? You'd be like, wait a second, what's going on? And then through a hole in the glass, a person jumps in, right? And then another person, two people. And then all of a sudden, a body is dropped through the glass in the ceiling, and the other two guys catch the body. And then the two other guys jump in, and everyone's like spreading out, and like, what the heck is going on? And then they take this guy on a mat and put him at my feet. Thank God that's never happened to me. You'd never forget it, though. I know I, I wouldn't forget it either. So I think Jesus saw their faith with his eyes, not his spiritual eyes, but his eyeballs. These four gentlemen were convinced that Jesus could help their friend. So they picked him up in a literal and actual Action. They lifted him, determined to carry him to Jesus. And when they couldn't get through the door, they wouldn't quit. So they climbed, another physical action, onto the roof and banged a hole through the roof, lowering their friend in. See all these action verbs? Faithful friendship is practical. You can feel it. You can see it. See it. It's active. It's persistent. It doesn't give up on a person even when the way seems hopeless. It bangs on real, actual doors, knocks through real, actual walls. It risks real embarrassment to lift a friend up when he or she is down. The paralyzed man never makes it into the presence of Jesus without the practical actions that Jesus saw. He couldn't get there alone. He needed his friends to practically encourage him, to practically pick him up, to literally lower him through a roof. The ride that you give, that treat that you bake, that note that you send, that call that you make, that time you help someone work through their budget, that visit you make, that meal you bring over, that job reference you give, all of those practical actions, they lift up people. And sometimes they lift them into the presence of Jesus. And many of you know, uh, this summer my family was supposed to move into our new house, which we purchased well in advance of the sale 
of our old home that we were living in. Well, a funny thing happened on the way to that new home that actually isn't so funny. Uh, we hired a contractor who scammed us. Uh, nothing was finished when we sold our house, and everything that was done needed to be done again. So when we closed the sale of our old home, we had no home to move into. We were stuck and in some ways homeless, not to the extremes uh, that you can see in other cases, but we didn't know where we were going. So we stayed with friends for several days. And when the word got out, I would at least half a dozen people uh, in this community offered us a place to stay in their home while our new house was getting sorted out. And in the end, a friend from Mosaic, who just happens to be traveling all summer, uh, invited us to house sit in her home while she's away. Practical help. Very practical. And it hasn't been easy, but I can only imagine if we were trying to stay in hotels or moving around from place to place with two toddlers. Practical means a lot. And to everyone who offered us space or help, thank you. But practical actions were just one needed aspect, as great and as important as they are, of what made these guys good friends. There was also a spiritual need that they were meeting. So there is practical, and then there is internal or spiritual. And this is the spiritual need. I really believe this. Spiritual power is amplified in community. It's amplified in community. So Mark writes this. When Jesus saw their faith, their, T-H-E-I-R, their. Now notice he doesn't say that he saw the man's faith that was healed. He saw their faith. And what I think we can learn from this is that there's some sort of combination, multiplication, building, a combining effect of faith in community that is unique and powerful. I really think that spiritual power is amplified when it is shared. And this is important because there are times at our lives, in our lives when, if we're honest, we don't have a lot of faith, right? I think that happens to everyone. It happens to me. There are times when we doubt the goodness or even the existence of God. And there are times when the last thing we want to do is try and come into the presence of Jesus. Life is hard sometimes, and hard things happen. And this is why being together is so important. There are times when we have just a shred of faith that we can own. But what if we could take that shred and add it to someone else's ounce of faith. And what if we could add that ounce to the bucket of faith that someone who just saw a miracle is living with? And together, we all have much more faith than when we're alone. Even if our own, on our own, we feel like we have little left to offer. What you have can become so much more in the presence of community. And that's important to remember. What you have can become so much more in the presence of community. 
And this, I think, is one of the reasons that Jesus responds so positively to this group. This group of friends. And why, in other places, he's continually encouraging people to group up, to come together, to share their faith with each other. Famously, Jesus said, again, truly, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where, heard this before, if you've grown up in the church, you probably have, or two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Doesn't mean Jesus ignores us when we're alone, but there's something special about getting together, staying connected, building relationships, having friends. There's a different way to experience Jesus that's unique and a special way that Jesus responds to those who gather in his name. Your prayers are powerful, but they are more powerful when they're joined with the prayers of others. And that's part of the reason we, we worship together this morning. We could do a lot of things after this sermon, but one of the things we always do is lift our voices together. We pray together through song and music because there's a special way that God responds when we pray and worship together. We can experience something here or in our small groups or in friendships that has the potential to be unique and powerful in ways that inner devotion and private reflection as great as they are and as much as they offer, cannot be. God himself exists in community as a trinity. And being made in his image means that there's an element of life that we cannot experience, an element of what it's supposed to be on our own. I know this can be hard. Our lives are busy. Um, I have trouble right now with all that's going on, just not... Falling asleep, standing up, drinking coffee right now. They're full of commitments that are important. And we need space for individual time. But if we become isolated, our faith becomes simply our own personal expression. We lose this dynamic of multiplied spiritual power. And this is why our church is organized in small groups and other groups that meet in people's homes for connection and spiritual development, service, a small group is the first place that I really experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit for the first time. A place where I learned how to pray for people for the first time. And after a while leading a church, I remember I stopped leading a group because I was too busy. Stopped going to one. And I discovered it left a hole. You know, when we bought this building, it didn't look like this. It looked a little bit different, and uh, we had to raise a lot of money to, you know, take out a wall, put in sound system, fix any problems that existed, and we had all this money pledged, but it was going to come in over three years, we needed, but we needed to do the work now. So we had to get some kind of what you might call bridge financing from a bank that would allow us to do the work that we could then pay off as pledges came in. So I will, I will underestimate this because I don't know if I remember the specific number. I think it was more than this, but it was at least, I got at least 15 no's from banks. I think it was 18 uh, applying for that uh, bridge financing so we could remodel there. And uh, I started having weird dreams where... 
I'd be riding on this really narrow bridge. Have you ever had a dream like this? In a car, and I'm driving, and at either side I can look off the edge, and I can see all the way down. There's no guardrails. Really fun. And so I'm driving along there, and I don't know how long I'm doing that, but eventually I get down in the valley, and I go into this place, and lo and behold, it's a bank. <laughs> and I remember there's somebody there who can give me a loan, but I can't find him. I'm going in room after room after room. Oh, they just went to lunch. Oh, they're making copies. I never find them, and then I wake up. Really hard to interpret that dream. <laughs> I had to call my very, very prophetic friends to figure that one out. So I shared that with my small group, and they prayed for me. And it helped, and it encouraged me. And then number 19 said yes. I think it was a terrible deal. But 20 or 21 worked out. Uh, so we need the practical help that community can provide, and we need the spiritual help that community can provide. But I will say this too. Friends, in the end, and I think we need to remember this, by themselves aren't enough. And to be a good friend, and to be part of a healthy community, we also need to understand that. I know you probably weren't expecting me to say that. I think friendships are important. All these powerful dynamics I'm talking about are possible and real and available and important. And in the end, no group of friends by themselves, no matter how awesome, is enough. And this is where we're talking about the deepest need. And I'll say this. We need even more than a lift. We need a Savior. Mark writes this. When Jesus saw their faith, that's our last key word, when Jesus saw their faith. You know, one of the things that makes these guys such good friends is that they understood what they had to offer. I don't know if you realize that. And as important and helpful as it was, it wasn't enough for their friend. And if their practical help and spiritual boost was enough for him, they could have stayed home. Right? There's no need to carry their friend to Jesus. But they were passionately aware that even their very best efforts would not be enough for him. So they actually point their paralyzed friend away from themselves into Jesus. They don't expect to be the all, be the the be-all and end-all. They don't expect that their community, that their friendships will be enough. And they're aware of their limits. Their faith actually isn't in their community. Instead, it's directed at Jesus. And I think good friends get this. We can be a lift, but we cannot be a savior. And we should expect our friends to lift us up, however imperfectly, and even to lift us into the presence of God. But we see here, we shouldn't expect our friends to be able to save us. We have deeper needs than we can meet for each other. Do you understand that? I think this is illustrated powerfully in this story. In this story, Jesus is most interested in the deepest needs of the people around him. So if you can imagine, being in the room, maybe Jesus is here instead of me, dusting the glass off, and, you know, and the two men, they, they jump through the roof, they, they reach up and catch a third man, who's dropped down in front of everyone and placed him in front of Jesus. What's everyone expecting? 
I'm sure, I'm sure you could have heard a, a pin drop at that moment. What do you think they're expecting? A healing, right? Guys, that's what Jesus is going to do. That, that's the setup, man. It's right on a T for a miracle worker, right? Just heal the guy. Let's get back to the talk, right? But what does Jesus do? Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if I was there, I would probably have been thinking, well, thanks, Jesus. That's great, but can't you see what the real problem is? This guy can't walk. Jesus doesn't look at it like that. Jesus isn't looking to meet a real need in our lives. He's looking to meet the deepest need. The need that even community, as great and as important as it can be, can't meet on its own. Here's what I wonder. I just wonder, like this guy who is healed, he may be thinking to himself, and probably at some point was thinking, if I could only walk, everything would come together in my life. All the problems of my life would be solved if I didn't have to suffer through this disability. And you know what? There's probably some real truth to that. But there's also truth to the fact that after a few months, when the initial euphoria of his physical healing wears off, he's still going to be the same person he was before. Before he could walk, right? And I think this is, could be Jesus saying in some sense, I know you can't walk. And that's a real problem, obviously. But there's a bigger problem here in your life. A deeper need that has to be addressed. And if it's not, eventually you're going to be just as miserable or more so than you are now. The most famous example of this is lottery winners, right? If you want to be depressed, I'm sure you do. Google lottery horror stories. See what comes up. It's list after list of people who won the lottery and then met fantastically terrible ends. The most famous study happened way back in 1978. Journal of Personality and Social Psychology published research that interviewed Illinois state lottery winners and compared them to non-winners and with people who'd suffered a terrible accident that left them uh, paralyzed. And each group answered a series of questions aimed at measuring their happiness. So here we have actually people who've been paralyzed compared to people who've won the lottery. The study found that the overall happiness of lottery winners spiked when they won, surprise, but returned to pre-winning levels after just a few months. And in terms of overall happiness, the lottery winners were not significantly happier than the non-winners. And the accident victims were slightly less happy, but not by much. And I think the takeaway is, you know, smoke, uh, sudden wealth is likely to exaggerate your current situation, but it won't fundamentally change your sense of well-being. If you're unhappy, you're not good at managing money, or you're surrounded by people you don't trust, a big win will probably make your problems worse. If you feel fulfilled, and you're a careful financial planner, and you have strong relationships already in your life, a lottery win is likely to build on those strengths. 
Uh, New York Times author, I'm sorry, Village Voice author, Cynthia Heimel wrote this. She said, quote, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish. I don't agree with her, but I understand what she's saying. That's not how God is. But you can see in this passage, he won't simply heal this man and let him leave thinking that his deepest wish has been answered. Instead, he pushes him and those listening by saying your sins are forgiven. There's a deeper need in that gentleman. And I would say there's a deeper need in all of us that in our approach to Jesus, we can often gloss over. We want Jesus to help us with something so that we can get back to the business of taking care of ourselves. Fix this one thing and I'll be okay on my own. But Jesus is trying to get us to understand that what is broken goes much deeper than what we can handle on our own or what we can handle simply with the support of friends or community. As important and as powerful as those are, there's work that only Jesus can do. There's work in my life that I need Jesus to help me with because I'm stuck. And as a community, we can support each other practically. We can pray. We can help each other have the courage to deal with the real issues in our lives. These are important. And ultimately, we point each other towards Jesus. This is faith. This is believing that our ultimate wish fulfillment is found in Jesus and that he's the one that's adept enough to deal with our deepest needs, even our sin. So I hope this sermon can help encourage you on a few levels. Super obvious, I think, would be to to connect, to make some space, even if you've been burned before, to connect with other people, Uh, to take a chance on Christians, maybe if you've been burned by Christians before, that there can be some spiritual dynamic in relating to other people centered around Jesus that can make a difference in your life. The second would be to reach out, to pay attention, to stay engaged with the people in your life when they're in need, practically, spiritually. And the third would be to relax. Uh, There's some of you here who are your great friends, and you worry about it all the time, too. I think I'd rather have a bunch of you in my life, but also, um, you're, not, you're not the Savior. Um, you don't have enough. And I think the encouragement for you is the story of Jesus with you know, the five loaves and the two fishes, this little boy with this little meal and over 5,000 people to feed. And he offered what he had, and then Jesus multiplied it. Whatever you got, just put it out there, and then that's part of faith, too. Staying engaged, staying involved, but just trusting that uh, Jesus is still the one uh, that is the healer, the provider. Let's pray. Jesus, I know that every person in this room needs to have meaningful relationships and community also needs to be connected in ways where we can use our gifts to love other people. That's important. 
we're all coming from different places. Some of us are really feeling that in our lives right now, and it's such a blessing. Others of us feel uh, a lack, but we want it. I pray for all of us that you would meet us at our point of need and that there would be grace for us to build and connect the type, to the type of relationships that we can give and take, that we can be lifted and that we can lift. We do life together, that we can have grace for each other and forgive. Also with the grace to know who to point people to and what our limitations are. We all want this, Jesus. And so wherever we are in our lives, whatever grace we need to experience this more, be this more, uh, meet us there in your grace, in your provision. Bless the community here at Mosaic Community Church. Bless it leading into the future. Help us to learn and grow. Help us to step into everything that you've called us to be as a community. May it be a source of your life and ours and light in West Philly and beyond. Amen.